Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 127 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prosser here with Andrew Frankel. Um, Andrew, this episode really is about great road trips. We're going to talk about some of the specific road trips that we've been on, but also that I want to get stuck into the sensations of a road trip. Um, well, I want to get stuck like... into the components of yeah. a road trip. And one of the points I'll be making is... You don't need a fast or expensive car at all. There are other comp- there are other components which are way more important than that. Um, so I want to go about how you- I want to talk a bit about if you're doing a road trip, what you should be thinking about before you leave. Um, mm. Yeah, where you go, how you organise it, all that sort of yeah. stuff, just to make sure that you have a properly m- <laughs> memorable experience for all the right reasons. Well, that's good. This, it'll be balanced then, because at least two of mine that I want to talk about were in very fast, very expensive cars. So good. We'll offset, offset that a little bit. Um, we need to talk about a couple of things before we start that, though. First of all, we need to talk about Sir Chris Hoy, um, yes. who was the very first guest on our brand new uh, guest-based podcast series, which is called Last Blast, um, which went live last week on Thursday. Um, and it's for TI subscribers only. Um, so if you want to check out what Last Blast is all about, um, head to the-intercooler.com um, and start your free trial. You'll be able to listen to it. But we'll talk about it a little bit here because, um, I mean, it's a brilliant interview with someone who... Do, do you know what? I, I sent you a message last week saying, actually, I think Chris Hoy is just about the perfect kind of guest because he's famous for something... Um, beyond the world of cars, but very, very credible in the car world as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, you know, for me doing this, because it was, it was actually, we, we've recorded six and it happened to be the first one I did. And I was just a bit sort of um, nervy about the entire thing. And I know that everybody says this about uh, about Chris, but he really he is just the nicest bloke in the world. And, and, and yeah. when you see him being interviewed or being a pundit or whatever, that's him. There is absolutely no difference. There's no sort of public or private face of Chris Hoy. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's, he's a complete petrol head. I mean, I should say there, we, we did release, didn't we, uh, an excerpt from it, um, which is on all the usual podcast platforms. Um, but the point about Last Blast is, as the name suggests, the whole thing is a, it's an interview through which we, the subjects talk about their individual favourite cars, be they cars that they've driven or owned or raced or just had on their bedroom wall when they were kids. And at the end of it, they tell us what they'll have their, their Last Blast in. Um, and because we're cruel, you only get to find that bit out if you subscribe and listen mm-hmm. to the whole thing. But there's a bit of it on podcast, so you can, so you can get a feel for the sort of thing, what we're doing. Um, and he was, he's just such a passionate petrol head. Um, you know, this is a bloke, let's not forget, who's done a triple stint at night in Le Mans in an LMP2 prototype. 
So he's not Proper. like some bloke who, I don't know, occasionally does, you know, a little clubby at Mallory Park. He's a proper racing driver. Proper mm. racing driver. Um, who, who um, and I don't think he'd deny this, speaks as passionately about cars and racing and his heroes from that world as he does about, you know, the cycling world, for which he's obviously far and away more famous. <laughs> so, um you know, just a cracking chap. Um, you know, great interview. Thanks entirely to him, nothing to me. And uh, yeah, do go and have a listen. I think you'll enjoy it, really yeah. do. Yeah, I do as well. So we did, you're right, we did release a 15-minute excerpt from that um, hour-plus interview last week. So um, if you're listening now, you may have heard um, that already. I'm just going to play two minutes of that interview now um, for anyone who hasn't heard any of it so far. I'll play two minutes now. Um, There is a 15-minute extract available on the main podcast feed. Um, But if you want the full thing, the-intercooler.com. You'll find it there in the video and podcast tab. But let's have two minutes now. Do you know what? The favourite car that I've ever owned, and I still got it, and I can't see myself selling it unless I have to at some stage, a 911 GT3 RS 991 second gen Visac pack. Wow. Um, magnesium wheels, you know, the full shebang. And it's, it's set up, it's got the Manti. You've got sense, yeah, it's got the KW suspension. So I've got oh, that done wow. pretty okay. much straight off the back. So it's got this, it's not got the aero package, but it's got the suspension. Yeah. It's got this, the surface transform um, ceramic discs on it. Yeah. Um, brake lines. Um, what else have we done? The JCR exhaust on the back. Um, it's, I've done it exactly how I like it and, and I use it as a track day car yeah. which is you know it's way way too much for a regular track day car you don't need that kind of performance but it's the closest thing that I've found what I love about it is that you could drive to Spa do a track day and drive home mm-hmm. and it'll do everything yeah. to an amazing level um, in fact I drove a GT2 RS that it was a um, Porsche GB's own one yeah to Spa, did the GT2 RS Club Sport race, the first ever GT2 RS Club Sport race um, a couple of years ago in Spa against all the other GT2 RSs yeah. and the 935. And drove there and back in, in this GT2 RS. And it was, it was the most incredible demonstration of what the 911 platform can do. It's extraordinary, um, isn't it? And it's such a cliche and everybody raves about them. And before, and it put me off them for so long, I resisted the urge of, to drive yeah, the modern Because people like me have been banging GT, on about yeah, them for and, and then you get, And you go, it's like the first corner, you kind of go, oh, I get it now. Yeah, <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. So that is my dream car. The Last Blast podcast is sponsored by Footman James, a car insurance company unlike any other. Footman James exists right at the heart of the car enthusiast scene in the UK, holding regular car meets, publishing reports into the health of the classic car scene in this country, and yes, sponsoring the best car podcast out there. Thank you, Footman James. To find out more, head to footmanjames.co.uk. And I think even in those two minutes, you sort of get a feel for how passionate Chris Hoy really is about cars. So that's Last Blast, our new um, podcast series. And we will have another episode on Thursday this week with another great guest. Um, yeah, and the, and the fact you're listening to this, I guess it's therefore pretty self-evident that this podcast, the the Dan and Andrew show, doesn't change. We'll keep on doing this. Um, so yeah, don't worry about that one. It's not a sort of either or. Um, it's purely additional. Yeah, which keeps us busy. Um, <laughs> let's just have a, a look at a couple of the pieces that we've published um, on the Intercooler app and the Intercooler website recently. In fact, it's a two-parter. We're just going to talk about this two-parter, um, which. I mean, cars 
a car of a, a car of a, of a kind is mentioned. I suppose there's an, in this it, piece, it, but really, there's an EV in it, isn't there's there? There's an EV. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to explain then? Yeah, um, this is the best thing I have done professionally speaking without having a steering wheel in my hand. Yeah. Um, uh, so I interviewed a bloke called Charlie Duke, and his name may not uh, ring many bells, but be advised, he is one of just four people alive today who can tell you what it's like to walk on the moon. He is wow. an absolute hero. It, you know, before he did any of that, he was a fighter pilot in the Cold War in East Germany, well, on the East West German border. Then he was a test pilot, you know, under Chuck Yeager. And then he got on the Apollo program. He was Capcom, which is the bloke who's the only person who's allowed to talk to the astronauts on Apollo 10, which was the dress rehearsal for the moon. On Apollo 11, you never get that job twice, except he did. And when Neil Armstrong goes, the eagle has landed, and somebody on the ground comes, you had us all turning blue, you know, thank God for that. That's Charlie Duke. So he was, he's the voice on the other end of the telephone. And then on Apollo 13, he's never, in, he's never even mentioned in the film, doesn't even get a credit. You know, remember that bit where, you know, Ken Mattingly, who was meant to have gone up, uh, but he got measles and so he couldn't. He got measles from Charlie Duke, as it happens. Um, and he spent all that time in the simulator trying to work out how to get the boys home. Well, there were two simulators, one for the command module, one for the lunar module. Um, and Mattingly was in one, absolutely, as the film portrays. But Charlie Duke was in the other. Um, and without him, they wouldn't have come home. And then he went up on Apollo 16. And he talks so vividly. He's nearly 87 now about the, the sensations of sitting on top of a Saturn V rocket, which burnt, get this, it burnt more fuel in one second than all of the fuel required to get Charles Lindbergh across the Atlantic in 1927. One second, that amount of fuel. One second. In one second. Um, and he talks about the journey out. And then he, you know, and the other thing is, I, I didn't really appreciate, when I think about people going to the moon, I thought they'd sort of go out, um, have a trundle around, collect some rock and go home. He was there for three days. He had a long mm. weekend on the moon. <laughs> um, he did. And, and here comes the EV because he was also the bloke who was um, in charge of the lunar rover so he went he went I think nearly four miles away from the lunar module in this EV which in the moon's gravity weighed 35 kilograms because it's like that one sixth amazing, of the gravity we have here um, and, and I said to him uh, what happened if it broke down or you got stuck and he's, well, go and, read the, go and read the interview because he, he explains, they, they, they had thought about that, about what they were going to do. And they, he explains all about it. He's just, and he's just the most lovely, self-effacing, modest, nice, you know, or shucks kind of guy. Um, mm. I was completely starstruck. I hope it doesn't come across oh, too much. Um, no, this, but, no, it doesn't actually. It doesn't. Um, and um, do you know what? Later on, um, maybe not this month, maybe towards the end of the month we're going to release that that interview as a podcast as a standalone podcast um because it's it's worth listening to the whole thing um but until then before then you can go and read andrew's two-part interview with charlie duke um but why we're a car magazine we're a digital car magazine yeah um there's a car just in it? occasionally <laughs> there is a car in it but just occasionally we publish um pieces that aren't necessarily to do with cars but they are uh to do with worlds adjacent to cars or they are to do with topics that we think the typical car enthusiast will find interesting as well yeah because you know i i don't think that our audience are so 
binary is to think that you know there's cars and there's everything else and you're only interested in cars and you couldn't possibly have any interest in anything else and mm. you know these things come out one day and you know if, if, if you know lunar exploration isn't for you well tomorrow there'll be something else and i, I we have a tab don't we on the website and on the and on the app called universe yeah. um and that's actually got nothing to do with the universe it just means that's where we play stories which aren't as you say they're slightly tangential to cars but we find them really interesting so there are stories in there about um, the first time the Eiger was climbed. Um, I did a story about uh, Ernest Shackleton's lesser known, but in many ways just as heroic, um, Nimrod expedition. It's stuff which you're not going to read in any other kind of automotive media. Um, and, and it just basically goes on the, I hope not too arrogant basis, that you know we find it interesting, so we hope you will too. Yeah. It'll always be about adventure, won't it, of some description. Mm. Um, and actually that ties in quite well with the subject of this podcast, doesn't it? Road trips. <laughs> It does rather. Um, so yeah, before we get stuck into that, um, last week on Tuesday, I went and collected my new car. Um, and I have posted about it on social media. So if you've seen that, you won't be surprised to see that um, I've replaced my Alpine with a, a Mark 7.5 Golf GTI. Um, I've had it for not quite a week. I think it's brilliant. Mm. Um, I will write about it on the app and website soon. Um, so I'll tell you all about the spec, um, what it's like to drive. But honestly, all, all I'll say for now is I'm so glad I spent as long as I did searching around for this car. And when I saw this particular car appear on my search on some classified sites somewhere, I picked up the phone immediately. It's one of those where you have to pick up the phone, paid 99 quid or whatever it is to reserve the car because it's perfect and you haven't seen another quite like it. Um, yeah, and and that's the thing, isn't it? With something like Gold Jeep, there are so many out there. But actually, oh, so many. and quite rightly, you wanted a particular specification. Yeah. Um, and this car came up, didn't it? And it was it's an approved used car, isn't it? Mm, it um, is. And and it just ticks every box in terms of the kit it's got in it, the colour, and you know, I mean, I've seen photographs of it, and I, I also I just love those cars. I love the mark 7.5 golf to the extent that mm. i actually own one uh, nothing like as um fast or glam as yours but they're just i mean that's that's peak volkswagen right there that is peak volkswagen that is volkswagen at their over-engineered best and the golf 8 just isn't isn't anywhere near that no it's so much better to drive than a mark 8 gti i've driven yeah. a few and this one is is far beyond um i'll explain exactly why i'm actually quite head over heels with it in a written piece very soon but it's fantastic um all right so we are talking about road trips um because if you love cars and you love driving there's almost no better way to enjoy cars and driving than set off on a several hundred mile maybe a couple of thousand mile road trip um from where we are that probably means into the continent although it might mean going north um and it's the the sensation that I wanted to describe, first and foremost, before we get stuck into some of the specific exam- examples, is this. In this day and age, right, we are, and particularly when you're running a business, um, and particularly when it's a sort of digital thing across lots of different platforms, your attention is dragged here and there and across all different places, and then you've got stuff that you have to do at home, and then you've got a dog that needs to be walked, and then you might have a partner who's expecting a baby, and there's just so much going on it's i feel like i'm spread thin and on a day-to-day basis i have a thousand different things on my mind um 
and and it's our phones as well, isn't it? Our, our phones are constantly vibrating at us. We're compelled to check our emails because we can't help it. Um, and so this is why I love the sensation of a road trip because I forget about that. I put my phone to one side for as long as I'm at the wheel. Um, and all I have to do that day is drive. And particularly when there isn't a big hurry, it's so blissful to know that my only obligation for that day, and maybe the day after, perhaps the day after that, is just to drive. And it's so relaxing. And that is why I love a road trip. And it's, you know, it's something we've talked about a little bit on this podcast before, about driving for the sake of driving. Because usually, when, even if we have you know, nice cars or we look forward to a drive, it's usually because you've got something to do, you've got somewhere to be. Mm. And, the, and the liberating aspect of the road trip is the drive becomes the purpose. The drive becomes the destination. Mm. Um, and that is the, the... The only thing I will completely disagree with you on is I don't think you need to go hundreds of miles. If I think... Well, it okay. depends. I suppose it just depends <laughs> on what you define as a road trip yeah. um, rather than a decent drive. You know, I have had... I mean, honestly, one of the most memorable drives of my life was in my 2CV going to the pub with Chris Harris and another, another 2CV. And it was only about... <laughs> seven miles but it's one of the silliest things i've ever done in a car um and when we were done we literally we couldn't talk to each other we were laughing so much <laughs> and so you know it doesn't have to be that but yeah i yes i suppose you know the sort of the proper traditional road trip um and and to me it's all in the plan i think there are two ways of doing it. you either don't plan at all and but that tends to be a bit of a solo thing where you just get up early in the morning and you just drive and yep. if you get caught in traffic, you just turn off or turn mm. around or wait or whatever. That's one. But that's not real. I think the road trip you're talking about are ones where, you know, there are overnight stays and there are a few of you. Yeah. And it's just a bunch of like minded individuals enjoying well, their cars, but in particular, the business of driving. And if you're going to do that, it, it, to me, you can't do too much prep. You can. And, and, mm. and if you do the prep properly you'll be amazed where you can have a decent road trip. Um, but yeah, so how are we going to do this? Are you going to talk about some of yours or should we talk about what's required for a decent road trip? Or I think let's do that now. Let's talk about what's required. And I'm intrigued by this idea of preparation. Presumably you mean finding great roads along the way or things perhaps related to cars along the way. Um, is that what you mean? You know, if you're heading towards, let's say, Germany or parts of France... And you haven't been to Reims before. That sort of thing is worth doing, isn't it? It just adds a bit of texture it, to your It, it to absolutely your road trip. is, yeah. But I, th- I think, that I, I think, well, I t- actually, the most important component of any road trip are the people you do it with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You could be in some amazing car and uh, surrounded by amazing cars, but if they're all, you know, not people you choose to pass the time with, <laughs> you know. So at oh, the end well, of it, that's relevant to one of mine, actually. Yeah. So at the end of it, you know, you're not all sat in the bar with a beer talking about the day and the experiences. Don't go. It's just, I yeah. mean, you and I, I'm not going to name here, but you and I will have been on you know, group tests. And I tend to get on quite well with my motoring journalist chums, but we've all been on group tests where, you know, there might be one or two people who 
you know, aren't in it for the same reasons that you are and you don't feel that you can, you know, and, and it just becomes a job then, doesn't it? And it's fine. You go off mm. and you do it and, you know, that's fine. But to me, it's a shared experience, isn't it? And particularly if you're chopping in and out of each other's cars and that sort of thing. Um, so that to me is the most important thing, whether you just do it with one other person or that you go mob handed. It's about the company you're keeping. Um, then it's about, you know, well, let's talk a bit about the prep because, you know, you can have a decent road trip in, in in the sort of places you wouldn't necessarily expect to. So quite recently, I do this with a bunch of um, motoring journalists every year. We meet up every year um, and we rotate the sort of location around where each one of us lives. And this time it was around a friend of ours who lives in West Sussex. Um, and we were down there on the first day of it was on a Friday. Now, you wouldn't have thought that on a Friday with weekend traffic in West Sussex, which is quite a crowded, that you could really exercise some cars but in fact because he'd done his prep and he worked out the route um you'd be amazed what you'd find you, you, he just found really quiet roads and they were wonderful to to go along but if you're going further afield i mean to me i think the place that is the best accessible place to do road trips is france you know france yeah. is four times the size of england but it has the same population so the population mm. density is is nothing and if you get away from the big cities and the main arterial roads and you're on those little end roads, um, that's just joy. You can just go and go and go. And it doesn't... One of the problems is people don't use maps anymore. Mm. Um, I know I'm sounding really that's old true. now. That's true, actually. But, but I love sitting down with a big map of whichever country I'm visiting and just threading a route. And sometimes it'll be a bit disappointing because there'll be factors you can't see on the map which spoil it. But most of the time, if you just take a bit of time and look at the yellow roads rather than the red ones, um, you'll be able to thread a route from point to point. And it's marvellous. You know, in France, the roads are deserted. Mm. Uh, you know, as long as you're sensible and don't speed in the villages, um, you know, no one is going to give you any trouble at all. And it's such a big country. You can just go and go. And I think some of the best road trips I've ever done have just been bimbling about in france and at the end of it you know finding some um little place to stay and you know a few beers and oh it's just lovely i absolutely adore mm. that sort of thing steak yeah. frites <laughs> yeah so preparation is key figuring out where you want to go rather and you're quite right about maps i mean you, you don't get that with a sat nav do you you can't tell it no. to take, take me via okay sometimes they have a scenic route but who knows what that means um, you can't tell it to take in some brilliant A or B roads where you can really exercise your car or via Rouen so you can have a look at the old Grand Prix track. You know, you, you have to figure this, this stuff out yourself, don't you? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, preparation key. Um, all right. So let me give you one of mine, um, one of my most memorable road trips. And actually, I don't think I even drove on this one, this first one, Um this was when I was 17, and I did have a driving license, only a couple of months in. Um, but I went with my uncle and my uncle's friend um, and um, a cousin to the Nürburgring. And this was my first, all of us actually, it was our first trip to the Nürburgring. My uncle had an MGZS 180, so the V8 one. Sorry, the V6 one, the front-wheel drive V6 one. Um, and his friend, his neighbour, had a blob-eye Subaru Impreza, um, yeah. which he was very, very fond of. And we both, we all um, set off um, through, and it's the most tedious drive, isn't it, through Belgium. <clears throat> um, and actually we did go via Spa just to have a peer over the, um, 
over the gate because you can see the source, can't you? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so we did that, and then onto the Nurburgring. First time we'd been there, expectations were sky high because of everything we'd seen and read and heard about the place. But when you get there, it's better than you can possibly imagine. And when you get into that car park, and it's full, packed to the rafters with exotic cars with 911 gt3s and supercars and quick hot hatches and fast saloons people just enjoying great cars and you realize do you know what maybe that sort of thing is a bit more common now because there are so many car meets going on so many coffee runs going on but back then and we're talking almost 20 years ago i'd never been or seen been to or seen anything quite like it it was fantastic um, and that's even before you go out on circuit. Yeah. You should, even just in that car park, soaking up the atmosphere, but watching also, the cars I, howling past. Fantastic. If you're ever going to the Nürburgring, you have to go, we well, don't have to go past Spa. Uh, there was, there's another route, which I always argue about, virtually, which is a quicker route. So you just go on to Cologne and then turn south towards Koblenz. But actually the route from Spa to the Nürburgring, you go down to Prum and then you go, was it, from Kelberg Gerolstein it's a really good road it's a really good way mm. to get your head in the in the right place yeah. for um yeah. for going to the Nürburgring so I'm, I'm going to do a local one I, I'm very lucky um that I live uh well just over the Severn Bridge um and for me my favorite sort of road trip that I can just get into a car and do is here to Anglesey right mm. through the middle Right, you know, because you know you don't have to be. You know, you know, you and I have both been lucky to do some amazing journeys in some fairly far-flung parts of the world. But you don't have to, and you know, not everybody has the time or you know gets invited on press launches in weird places. And you know, and I think the point I would like to. I mean, okay, so here's here's, here's what I did. Um, a few years back, um, Mauro Callo, um, who is a professional driver, um, he does. He's one of the two precision butt drivers that. Um, Eon Productions hire when they've got a Bond movie to do. So they have stunt drivers and they have precision drivers. And stunt drivers go around crashing things and precision drivers are when you need a car to go completely sideways between two um, ancient you know, pillars of some incredibly important <laughs> um, temple and you need someone not to cock it up. So they hire Mar- Marrow. And Marrow is a really good guy. And so we had a race. And we raced from the Seven Bridge to the Menai Bridge. He was in a 911 Turbo and I was in a Smart 4.2. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the idea was, I assume, is a fast car actually faster in the real world? How much faster in the real world? Because I don't think it'll okay. surprise anyone to know that he got there first. <laughs> uh, but I can't remember what it was. But it was he was only about 15 minutes ahead of me. And that's Mara, who mm. does not hang around. I mean, he's as good a driver as you'll ever come across. Um, and that's not... And, and, and Okay, so I mentioned that because it goes back to what I was talking about, is it's not about the car. I was in a Smart 4.2 probably had i don't know 70 horsepower but because you know we left at a fairly strange time of day and i know those roads inside out um and i was quite lucky with the traffic we must have done it at a weird time of year as well because it was very quiet i just love being out there and you know then you get to a stage where you know if even if a car's got a few flaws a few deficiencies you kind of you know get your head around them and you adapt to them and 
just being on wonderful roads, flowing from apex to apex. Um, you know, the only time it becomes a bit frustrating is if you get held up behind something because if you've only got 70 horsepower, it takes a long time to get past. Then again, the flip side of that, if you've got 670 horsepower, the periods between those holdups get shorter and shorter because you just, you know, the, the distance just, whereas if you get a break in the traffic at a Smart 4.2, it's a long, long time before you're going to catch anything else. Um, and it's just, you know, that route, up through the middle and i don't just sit on the a470 the whole way if you look at a map i won't bore you with the actual route um but there are so many little parallel roads which go over little passes um and are absolutely deserted and you can have some of the most beautiful countryside in europe effectively to yourself and it's just it's absolutely joyous and it's just four or five hours of you know pure driving pleasure whatever you're in so yeah love it okay it's, it's a really interesting point about the smart. Um, if you were in something with just a bit more power and a bit more sporting intent, would you have had a lot more fun? And I'm, I'm not talking, you know, I'm, what are we talking about? Maybe a Panda 100 horsepower, something, or a Suzuki Swift Sport, you know, something of that ilk. Possibly a little bit. Um, but you know, what I do quite often is if I'm on a quiet road, and these are all quiet roads, but you get unlucky, yeah? You find you know, some, you know, transit van or something which is ambling along and not going to pull over and get mm. out your way or whatever. I just stop. Yeah. And I wait five minutes. Mm. And because the car you're in isn't very fast, it will take you so long to catch them <laughs> up again, by which stage they've probably pulled off. And, and it, it, I don't know if anybody who listened to this does this. If you're being hold, held up, rather than risk your life and their life and somebody else's life with some lunatic overtake, just stop. Let mm. the road clear. And you'd be amazed how short a period of time you have to be stopped for before you effectively got to your, the road to yourself all over again. I just pull over. Yeah, have but the most frustrating yeah. thing is when you pull over and you're thinking, I'll pull out soon, I'll go. And then someone comes past you. Yeah, that's you why you always have to do it on the street. Yeah, but that's, that's a schoolboy <laughs> error, isn't it? So you always pull that over is. at the far end of a long straight, don't you? So you can see the buggers coming. See all the way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, you yeah. See, and, and you can judge whether you're going to let them go. Because if it comes along immediately, obviously you'll let them go and wait for the one after that. But yeah. yeah. And then you know you've got it. Then you know that unless there's some junction or whatever, you know you've got a big gap, and you know you've got the road to yourself again. Just, and again, it comes back to planning. It comes back to just putting a little bit of thought into it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I love it. Go, let's have another one of yours. Right, can we, can we going... one where you actually drove a car, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is going totally the opposite direction from what you've just been talking about. Right. This Go was on. May 2013, oh. and in Milan. Huh. Heading for Rome in over two days. This is the Lamborghini 50th anniversary celebration tour. I'm in a, a Ventador Roadster. V12 <laughs> monster. <laughs> right? This is, this is rather different to what you've just been talking about. Um, so th- this is when there were... How many cars were there? Dozens, maybe a couple of hundred, maybe a few more. So this was Lamborghini's 50th anniversary tour. And the whole thing ran... Um, through a huge part of Italy. I don't know the exact route, but I was doing the leg from Milan to Rome, which is, if you look at a map, it's a fair old way. It's a decent um, schlep, yeah. It's a big big run through through Italy. Um, and this was when the Aventador Roadster was brand new, so it was our first opportunity to drive this car. Um, so it felt like a big deal. And what do I remember? So I... there's this sense of excitement isn't there of course there is um but 
this goes back to what you were talking about earlier. I didn't know anyone on the trip. Didn't know a single person. Yeah. Um, didn't have a friend. And were you sharing the car with someone? No, I was actually on my own. Although I think for one stint, I had the the PR guy from Lamborghini in with me. But um, you didn't have to be driven by someone you didn't know because no. that that would just ruin the road trip for me point blank. Yeah, absolutely. That would make it quite terrible. Um, but no, I, I barely shared the car with anyone apart from for a short stint. Didn't have to be driven by anybody. But yeah, didn't know a sing- didn't know a soul on it. And so when you pull over at these prearranged stops for a bite to eat, um, and you don't know a soul. You know, it's a bit awkward, um, and you don't really you can't grab someone and say, "Wow, that last run was fantastic, wasn't it?" So you, the point is, you want to share these occasions with people. That's what makes them fun, really. Forget the cars; it's sharing an occasion exactly. with other people that makes them fun. Um, but there, nevertheless, of course, this road trip had its moments. Wow, there was a point where we were just rolling through the countryside, and I was behind a Kuntash. And it wasn't wow. going that fast. And I yeah. could have just popped out and blasted past it. But it had some naughty Why would you want it. to? Yeah. And just listen to it. Every time he backed off on the way to a corner, lifted off, it was just going... Dum, 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 dum. You know, the exhaust just spitting. I spent all day forth. doing that. It was fantastic. I think I maybe was even in automatic mode because there was no point. It was so slow. But my God, it was such a sight and such a spectacle. Mm. And the soundtrack yeah. was wonderful. So I just sat behind it for mile after mile. Um, there was another moment we drove through Pisa. And so to this date, I've only seen the leaning tower of Pisa from the driver's seat of a V12 Lamborghini. It's not the best way to view it. <laughs> you don't get a good look at the tower, but um, it was memorable. Um, and the P, the, the part of this trip that makes me shudder now. God, so we were on the auto route. Um, and there, there were a load of guys who had come over from um, East Asia. I think a load of them were from Hong Kong. And some of them had shipped their cars across. Others had rented cars locally. Um, but they were, <laughs> they were fairly unhinged. They wanted to get on with it. And at one point, I found myself at the head of the queue of maybe a dozen of these cars. Um, and I felt a certain responsibility. And honestly, it does make me cringe to think how fast we were going now. But for mile after mile after mile, we were sitting at fairly significant three-figure speeds. I was at the front of this train, a whole load of them behind me. Um, and this was on one of those auto routes that um, has lots of tunnels. And it had, you know, they often have these built-up sides, I think, to stop the sound, the noise from the road from spilling into the villages. And so the the rock, the sound, the noise we were making as we thundered past all this other traffic was unbelievable. Roof off. Wow, that was exciting. And the curious thing about it is, it doesn't feel that reckless. I mean, it is, of course. But in Italy, you feel like you have license to stretch a car's legs, particularly if it's an Italian car. It just sort of works, doesn't it? Um, so that was fairly exciting. And then the last bit was coming into Rome, um, which is a fairly stressful city to drive in anyway. Um, but what I remember was all the modern cars, hot day in the middle of Rome, all the modern cars quite happily poodling through town, all the old cars, the Muras and the Countaches, pulled over by the side of the road, bonnets up, just letting their, <laughs> car, letting their engines cool so they could carry on again. Um, but the, the, the curious thing about that trip, it, you know, an amazing setting for it, a phenomenal car for it 
um, but not really having anyone to share it with. And that reduced the joy of it by half. At yeah, least, half. at least, at least. So it's very interesting what you talk about. You know, you, you mentioned, didn't you, um, the pressure of feeling at you know, the, the head of this convoy and sort of yeah. the pressure to sort of perform a bit. And I think actually that's a very, very important point to make because the moment you feel you ought to go faster than you want then to, you want your car to. wants to, um, yeah. then all the fun goes out of it. And you think to yourself, well, if a bunch of us get together, there's always going to be a fast car, there's always going to be a slowest car. And so how do you make that work? And it's very simple. You just have a rule that you all mm. go at the speed that you want to go at. And you, you, when you get to a junction where you have to turn left, right or straight on, you never make that turn until the car, behind, the car immediately behind you turns up. You know, I've done mm. this. You know, I've, I've been in some fast car with some slower cars behind me and you end up waiting for a little bit for your mates to turn up. But so much better than them having to hair along trying to keep up with you. Um, so just be sensible about it. Go at your own mm. pace. Um, because again, if you don't want, if you're not doing that, if either you're going faster than you want to, or frankly slower than you want to, um, you're not having fun. Um, and I can remember this, you know, talking about driving fast around Italy. I've done the, the Millimilia a couple of times, the retrospective, uh, obviously mm. I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> but, um, well, on both occasions, on both occasions I did them in gullwing Mercedes, I was incredibly lucky. And in fact, on both occasions, I drove the whole route. Well, the first occasion, I think all but 50 miles of it, when the bloke I was with realised he was rather better at reading maps than driving, and I was exactly the reverse. Um, and there is pressure there. There is so much pressure. Oh, God. So yeah. much peer pressure. And I can remember um, I was chasing another one, Carl Wendlinger, great man, former, obviously, Formula One driver, um, was in the gullwing in front of us um and we were in the bar at the end of one particular day and he's a very serious guy he's not an idiot he's the absolute opposite of an idiot he's a very considered bloke and he looked at me and he said you know i did more stupid things than a car down i think i did my entire racing career bloody hell uh, yeah and 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 actually when i finally crossed the line and i was sharing with um, a bloke called Ed Foster, who will be known to many people because of his associations with Goodwood and Motorsport Magazine, that sort of lovely bloke. Um, and I turned, we literally went across the line at the end of the four days of this insanity. Um, and I said to him, right, your emotions right now. And he just went, relief. Yeah. Oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. So I can only imagine. Not, wow, that was incredible, just relief. Is there another yeah. country in Europe, maybe excepting parts of Eastern Europe, I don't know, where an event like that could possibly be held? No, absolutely, absolutely not. I can remember the first time we did it, we got a police escort through the centre of Bologna at 110 miles an hour. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, and recently, you know, I can remember being encouraged to speed up by the police because they were responsible for a certain amount of cars and if you weren't all keeping up it caused them problems yeah. um, because they could only block off junctions for a certain amount of time um, yeah. I mean it is ridiculous and I absolutely love it and I kind of hope that it happens um, forever but if I ever did it again I'd do it in a really old really slow car at the back and then just not have to because if you're, if you're up the mm. front with the prototype Ferraris and Maseratis and all that stuff. I mean, talk about what you were talking about with the noise and everything else, but mm. you just got to keep up. And I'm not quite sure why you have to keep up, but you just don't want to come in you know, mm. an hour behind everybody else. So it's pathetic, yeah. isn't it? Do you know what? I've done that. Um, it's slightly different, but the police escort through an Italian city. Um, this was, this was a mini event. I guess it was an anniversary event because it was 2009. So that makes sense. Doesn't it? 1959 being the, 
the launch of the original Mini. Um, and this was, I was in a, a Mini Cooper S John Cooper Works. Yeah, JCW, the, the first turbo one. So um, a couple hundred horsepower. And we were running, we were driving through Turin in convoy with a police escort, police outriders on, motor, on motorbikes, stopping traffic, waving us through red lights at junctions, really going quite quick, driving through the middle of Turin like it's a racetrack. But it's, you're being told to by the police. So it's superb fun. That was such <laughs> a privilege. You know, I might never do something like that again, but wow, that is an exciting well, At least you've done it. Yeah, can yeah. I talk about another one? Um, Go on. Okay, this isn't very real world. Good um, but it But it was the single best... Uh, is it best drive or best driving experience? There's something about it which is the best. I'm quite, not quite sure what figured out what it was. So this was... I'm guessing it's about 2005, 2006. Um, it's the launch of the second generation xk8 Mm. which they did in south africa and it's still to this day the best planned best executed launch i've ever been on uh it it just it just ran so well but anyway me and my mate gavin conway um who now lives in canada but uh former editor of classic sports car former editor of automobile in the states um former staff member of autocar he and I got in one, and, and also, you know, the best co-pilot you could ever want to have. You know, if, you know, I, he, he could drive me around the world and I wouldn't worry. Anyway, so we went off and the route took us up through the Franchip Pass and then it just went due north out to some station in the middle of nowhere. And the roads up there are unlike roads I've ever seen anywhere else uh, in that they are so wide and so fast and there are no junctions. You can see for miles and miles and miles. And I think Jaguar must have had a word with the police because we were told that we weren't going to be troubled by anybody. And people still don't really believe that we did this. And so you may or may not. All all I will tell you is that we did. We did a tank of fuel at an average of over 100 miles an hour on a single carriageway road. Bloody hell. Because you get get to the point, these roads are so big and so wide and so clear and so empty. You kind of think to yourself, well, why wouldn't we be doing this? And you're sitting there Mm. at, you know, 110, 120, and it feels so normal so Mm. normal and yeah i haven't in my life apart from doing stupid marathon stuff at autocar and that sort of thing but largely on motorways and in europe which we probably shouldn't discuss it i've you know certainly on not on motorways or jerry cars i've never driven that fast for that for that long anywhere and it was it was exhilarating it was invigorating we sort of kept on looking at it i think i must have driven out there and he drove back i can't remember but whatever um we both did the same thing and it was just like this, is this really happening? Are we actually mm. doing this? Um, and the car, I mean, the, the road couldn't have been better for that car because there were no, you know, there were no tight turns. It was just big, long straights with these incredible arcing corners, which you could just, you know, settle the car into at some unimaginable speed. And it was so good at that sort of thing, um, you know, with the V8, you know, rumbling and grumbling. And it was, yeah, I just, I can just remember sitting there thinking, I will never, ever forget this. And, mm. yeah, and I never have. Because, well, 16 years later, I'm still talking about it. Still talking about it. That's pretty epic. Well, I've got one more that I want to talk about. It's another British V8. Quite a different car, though. And this demonstrates an important point, which is time. I think time is an important component to a great road trip. Because if you have too little of it, and you find yourself just rushing, well, that's stress. And it's, you, well, you don't, 
appreciate it. You can't stop when you want to stop. You can't have a leisurely lunch because you have to keep moving. Um, this was 2018. McLaren launched the 600LT um, at the Hungaroring, just outside Budapest. Um, and I didn't do the launch itself, but I went to Budapest because I was driving a car back from there yeah, to the UK. And, I, and we were told... Sorry, I'm just going to have a quick go at you here. <laughs> right. I went out to that launch at the Hungaroring, and I yeah. did the launch. And I said, can I just quickly drive the car on the road? Oh, no, that's not possible. You yeah. can't drive the car on the road. I, can, I just want to go just literally around the road. This is a road car. It's got a number plate. Like, can I just drive it on the road? Oh, no, no, no. It's not possible. Not possible. You can't drive it on the road. Absolutely not. And then well, you... Well, they let me. Yeah, but I didn't... from Hungary back to the... <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I so didn't I got give it, familiar with it the maximum rating, whatever it was for whoever I was writing about, for literally that reason, because I just don't think yeah. you can give a car five stars or ten stars, whatever it is, um, without having driven it in the environment for which it's been designed. No. It's a good point. Sorry. And that, that is weird, but, um, well, they let me. I didn't drive it on track, though, so, you know, maybe it's fair. Um, but the, the idea was to drive the car back from Budapest to London um, and take in a couple of sort of interesting places along the way. And the, the trouble is, I had another job on um, later in the week. So I had literally two days to get back from Budapest to London while photographing this car and stopping yeah. off at a couple of significant places. And that always um, takes... I mean, people would be amazed, if you haven't been on a car photo shoot, just how big a chunk out of your day that takes. Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. So it's, it's 1,300 miles. It's a long, old way. Um, <clears throat> and, yeah, this was Mark Tishore, the um, editor of Autocar. He specifically asked McLaren to give me the least appropriate car they had for this, for this job. Um, and that meant the most <laughs> oh, hardcore... So no air conditioning. No AC, no radio of any kind, so no stereo at all. <laughs> and the Senna seats. You know, those rock-hard, fixed... Really? No, well, you'd be all right in them. But, I mean, I can barely sit in the bloody things. Oh, well, maybe. But, my God, they're uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and so that is, you know, is that your, is a masochist car. Holgan. Holgan, excellent. So yeah. Holgan is the chap who shot our GT4 RS versus GT3 comparison yeah. lovely bloke um yeah. thank goodness good because good company so that was fine yeah i've done five days in a car with a photographer i didn't get on with and that oh. was hell but that's another Awful. story go on yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but you're with Holgan, so that's okay yeah and so we um so this car was totally unsuited to a really long drive and the point being you know from a magazine editor's point of view it makes a better story doesn't it if there's some element of discomfort to it yes. um it makes it a bit more intrepid i suppose um we went to, oh, we had to take in a great road. You know, we didn't have much time, but we couldn't just sit on motorway, autobahn, auto route all the way. We had to, um, we had to take in some good roads. And so the one I wanted to do was the Grossglockner Pass in yeah. uh, Western Austria, um, which is a fantastic alpine pass. You know, there are so many of them. And this one is one of the great ones. And you drive all the way up to a glacier. Um, which is an extraordinary thing to do. And so clearly the car was tremendous on that road. Um, after that, we had an overnight stay just outside Munich. And so we came down the mountain, picked up the motorway again. And thank God, I mean, McLaren gave me the least appropriate car they could, but thank God they put it on Pirelli P0 Corsa tyres, not the Trofeo R. It rained a bit, that yeah. Car should have had. It rained a bit. 
<laughs> Honestly, coming in towards um, Munich, just looked ahead and it's still light. And the clouds in front of us were so dark, they were almost black. Um, and we were stopped at a junction at one point and we just saw the leaves blowing in circles across the road. You know, yeah. in that weird portentous yeah. way. And you just think, there's a storm coming. And we still had a good few hours before we, um, or at least a couple of hours before we made it to our overnight. And we got onto um, an autobahn. And the heavens, and it was, got dark by this point, heavens opened. Just steroids, you know, rain I've never seen before. Um, lightning, it was bloody hell, it was frightening. And we found ourselves on this bit of road that was unlit and there were no, um, there were no cat's eyes in the road at all. And the white lines were not reflecting any light whatsoever. And so all I had to go on was the few um, cars or trucks or vans that were in front of me. Um, there weren't many of us out there. I, honestly, and with the rain lashing down onto the windscreen, the wipers going back and forth as fast as they could, but nowhere near fast enough. There were whole seconds at a time where I couldn't see a thing in front of me. It was like I had my headlights off. Um, and I remember t- time and time again just waiting for the crunch as we hit the Armco, because I couldn't see. Couldn't see. Or waiting for the crunch as someone hit us from behind or we hit someone. Um, It was the most uncomfortable, actually the most frightened I have ever been in a car. And long before we were supposed to pull off, I just got off that road and there was a McDonald's nearby and we went and hid out in there for a bit. Hid Um, onto the Golden Arches. (laughs) the, The refuge of the Golden Arches. Um, it was honestly awful, and I never ever want to repeat it again. Terrible. Okay, so, so maybe good weather is another component of well, the ideal road trip. I think the last thing I'm going to say, because I think we, I think we must be close to um, running out of time, is be prepared. Obviously, make sure that you've done your prep um, and that your car's in good nick and everything else. But also be ambitious. Don't think, oh, that's a bit too mm. far. Um, because you want to come away thinking, wow. Um, and so however far you think you can get in a day, you can probably get further. Um, and that's where the stories really come from. You know, spend, you know, we all love driving. So do a lot of it. Have a proper go. Go far, far away. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've done... Explore. Trips. Explore, exactly. I've done bonkers trips. I can remember I went off with... so. Me and Mike Sayer from Bentley decided that we were going to try and see how many countries we could visit in 24 hours. And we started on the Belgium border with Holland or Luxembourg, somewhere there. And we were going to end up in Greece. Okay? <laughs> Didn't happen that way. We ended up in Poland. <laughs> okay. okay? I mean, we just went so insanely off piste for various reasons. Um, but it was, you know, that was, that was ambitious. We did 15 countries in 24 hours. So, you know, if we can do 15 countries in 24 hours, um, and okay, I, that was a stunt, uh, and I wouldn't suggest people normally try and do that sort of thing, but I would say, however far you think you can get, just broaden your horizons. Don't go to places because they sound a bit, you know, far away, or maybe a little bit dangerous, or I don't know. Just have some courage. Do your prep, and then, you know, if you're going to put that amount of effort into it, just really get out there and do it um 
you know, it may go wrong. And if it go wrong, that will be part of the adventure. And however horrible it is at the time, you'll spend years dining out on the stories thereafter. So even when it goes wrong, that's probably that can often be quite a good thing, because in retrospect, it just brings more texture and more colour and more life to the story. And, and, and the thing with these road trips is they're great to enjoy when you're doing them. But actually, you know, the fact that you and I be sitting here talking about, you know, trips that we did, well, you know, you did 20 years ago, me 17 mm. years ago. You know, it's the fact that they live on in your mind. And when we're all so old that there's nothing to look forward to anymore and you can only look back, those are the things that are going to keep smiles on our faces. It's going to be yeah. the memories of these adventures. Um, so, gosh, I sound evangelical, aren't I? I didn't mean to. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, just have a go. Don't be timid. Yeah. And if nothing else, it's good podcast fodder. Um, exactly <laughs> okay so we've got a listener question coming up um, but yeah. before that um, please uh, as ever rate and review the podcast I can see you doing it it makes a big difference it is making a big difference but if you haven't done it yet please do go and rate and review the podcast wherever you listen um, please also all our podcasts check out all, all of them because there are lots of them at the moment um, including last please blast. also Yes, like last blast. Please also check out the-intercooler.com. It's our ad-free digital car magazine where we post great stories every single day. Um, uh, You can start your free trial, your free one-month trial, and see what you think, the-intercooler.com. So the listener question comes from Geraint Thomas, and he puts in brackets, not the cyclist. Oh, Um, great. (laughs) Oh, well, never mind. Hi, Geraint. Yeah. He says, when I was about six years old, my father took me to see a friend who had a black 1994 Toyota MR2 in his garage, brand new. The Mm. sleek piece of machinery in front of me caused a spark that made me realize what we can do with the materials we dig up from the ground. And I've been passionate about cars ever since. My question is to both of you, was there a significant singular moment in your past such as this that cemented your future as a petrol head? Um, you have spoken about one such moment in the past. I've spoken but... about one, which so I won't go back to it again, where, I, where, where as a very, very small child, um, I got take, taken to the Ferrari UK concession, concession and I found uh, a Ferrari burning out a box with six exhaust pipes. And I had to, <laughs> literally had to sit on the ground. I was so completely stunned by this. And that's, that's kind of like the one, but I have spoken about... Um, I can remember as a kid, and it was a long time ago, because it would have been a Lotus, but seeing a Lotus 7 go down the road... Mm. Um, and the reason I own a Caterham to this day is because of that moment. Wow. I remember seeing this, and it was it was so low, it was so sporting, it was so spare. It just looked so unbelievably exciting um, that I just thought to myself, that just has to be the best car in the world. There can't be anything more exciting. <laughs> and it, it wasn't going fast. It wasn't like you know, nipping along. It was just, in fact, it's quite good that it was going slow because I had time to really sort of see it approach and come past and go away. And I remember, I remember that so well. Um, and one more was a friend of my father's, and this would have been in the mid-70s, had a 911 Turbo. So I would have been about 10, I guess. And I don't know why I was in it. Um, but he's a chap called David Haynes, and he, sadly he died quite young, but he was, he was a very capable racing driver. Um, and I can remember being in this car with him, and in the wet, him throwing it into this drift um, hmm. on a quite a quick corner. And he wasn't, I don't think he was particularly showing off, but I can just remember that feeling of travelling in one direction while the car was pointing in another and just finding that absolutely fascinating and being quite scared, but he just seemed to be completely on it. And 
I've just I've just remembered it, and yeah, it was my, it was my, it was my introduction to to oversteer because you know my father mm. was a fantastic driver, but he wasn't a sort of big skid merchant, um, and it was a feeling like I'd never had before, and yeah, that stayed with me too. So mm. yeah, that's a couple of them. Lovely. I remember a bit as a boy, and I already loved cars at this point. Already loved cars, and I saw an Aston Martin DB7 in a pub car park. Um, and I just stopped and stared and wouldn't be dragged away from it. Um, and the owner turned up and let me have a sit in it and said something um, something like, well, if you work hard at school, maybe you can have one of your own someday. Yeah. Um, that hasn't happened yet. Um, no. But I, I yeah, remember that very fondly. And it, it seems quite significant to me now that the bloke who designed it, Ian Callum, is now part of the Interschooler writing team. That's it's amazing, amazing, actually. Um, yeah. So there we go. Geraint Thomas. Um, thank you for your question. Uh, get your listener questions across and we'll finish next week's podcast with another. Bye.